Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, that's why we gather on a Sunday morning is to declare your worth, that to, to sing together that worthy is your name, uh, to magnify the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and to say thank you for all that you've done and how you've shown your love to us by sending your son Jesus, that we might have life everlasting. May our lives be leveraged for your kingdom and for your glory. I'm so grateful for every heart that's here, and I'm grateful, Father, that we have the opportunity to study your word today. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the strength of your word, Father. May we have ears to hear what you would say to us. I just ask, Lord, that I would rightly divide your word today, Father. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I'm excited we get to start a new book today. Yeah, right on. We are starting the book of Malachi, or yeah, that's if you're Italian, that's how you say it. Uh, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Eat more, eat more. <laughs> uh, Malachi, I think, is the proper pronunciation. So, um, how many people have ever studied the book of Malachi before, just out of curiosity? How many people read it? few of us have read it. It's tucked in the back of the Old Testament. Um, yep, I still can't type my password in pockets. <laughs> One more time. Thank you. Ah, there we go. Okay. Uh, last book of the Old Testament. So I'm excited for that. We've, uh, well, we haven't covered the whole of the Old Testament. We don't necessarily start at the book of Genesis and go all the way through. Uh, that would take a lot of years, and people would wonder where, what happened to the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so we kind of bounce back and forth as we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, between the Old Testament and the New. But uh, we've covered all of the minor prophets, which is kind of exciting for us to accomplish as a church. Uh, so that's uh, a mile marker on our book. Um, I'm excited for what's coming up uh, as we finish uh, Malachi. Not this week, but next week, we'll do. We'll break the book in half. There's four chapters. We'll cut it in half. Chapters one and two today. Chapters three and four next Sunday. And then for the month of August, we're going to do something very different for Calvary Chapel churches. I'm actually going to teach four topical messages for the month of August. And the reason I want to do that is I think I've shared with you before. I have a desire to write a book uh, that we're going to that I'm going to call 860. And each chapter will be on a different aspect of life done in the 860 style. Uh, so there'll be um, money 860, family 860, church 860, what have you. Each chapter will take a different subject. And the way most pastors get their books written is they teach them as sermons first, and then they translate them to book form. And so I'm going to follow in that suit. And for the month of August, we're going to take a break from the norm of Calvary Chapel. I'm going to teach four different subject 860 um, messages. They'll be rooted in God's Word. Don't worry, we're not getting away from the Bible here. Uh, they'll be rooted in God's Word, but we're going to do that in the month of August. And then the first couple weeks in September, Danny's going to teach through the book of Titus for us. Um, and so he's going to cover those things um, at, and while the Rajai family are on vacation. And then when we get back from vacation, mid-September, 
we're going to start the book of Revelation. So uh, plow through that chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That will take us a long time. Um, we might not get to chapter 1 of Revelation until mid-October. There's that much intro that could happen into the book. Uh, I know that I, one of the chapters I want to teach is Matthew chapter 24 before we go into it. There's a guy in the Calvary Chapel circles, his name is Tommy Ice, who taught 24 chapter, or 24 sermons on Matthew chapter 24. So I won't go to that depth. <laughs> but if, it's, I wanna, if we're going to study it, we may as well do it right, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll take our time with it. Anyway, that's kind of what's coming up on the Church 860 grand plan. Hopefully I gave you enough time to find the book of Malachi. Yeah. In between the old or the ending of the Old Testament, right before the beginning of the New Testament with Matthew. It is the final book of the Old Testament. Malachi kind of ushers the people into this 400-year period of silence. Did you know that? Between the last page of Malachi and the first page of Matthew, 400 years go by. And it's they call it the period of silence. It's where there weren't any prophets happening. There weren't people of God speaking on God's behalf. Uh, the nation of Israel just kind of continued to tick things off and, uh, and accomplish things and, and what have you. But it's not recorded in the scriptures what happened in those 400 years. What were you doing 400 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> we weren't even a nation, right? Our nation's not even 400 years old. So it's just something to keep in mind that as we just simply turn one page from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, it's one page for us, but it's 400 years worth of time that have gone by. Not much is known of Malachi, uh, where his background is, where he comes from, um, other than his name. And his name means my messenger. Malachi means my messenger. And that's really all we need to know, right? He's the messenger of God. He carried the message of God. How many bought something with Amazon Prime Week? Anybody buying? Uh, Andrew works for Amazon. Yeah, he buys Amazon, Amazon Prime. <laughs> I'm going to make myself work harder by ordering this package on Amazon Prime. <laughs> we ordered some stuff too. When the UPS man comes with your package from Amazon Prime, do you say, um, "Tell me about your family and let me know your family history and tell me what you've been doing this year and and what you have for breakfast this morning and." We don't typically find out a whole lot about the UPS man, but we don't need to know a whole, whole lot about Malachi either. We're not concerned with the messenger, we're concerned with the message. We're concerned with the package that we're about to receive. And so that's the idea. It's the message that is important, not the messenger. And that's why any man of God can replace any man of God in the pulpit. It's not, there's no celebrity pastors. There shouldn't be any celebrity pastors. Malachi prophesies about a hundred years after Zechariah. So we just finished the book of Zechariah, hundred years tick off. The temples have been built, the city's been reestablished, the walls have been built through Nehemiah, Ezra has rebuilt the temple, everything was accomplished the way that God intended it. And because of that, the people had kind of slipped into a routine. Day-to-day -day life, the grind, the normal things of life, they had slipped into routine and into complacency, specifically regarding the things of God. And if we're all honest with each other, we've been there, right? It, it becomes the routine. We work all week, we play on Saturday, we 
do our housework on Saturday, we do other things on Saturday, we go to church on Sunday, we get up on Monday, we start the routine over again. And week after week after week, it can become rote. It can, we can become complacent. And the book of Malachi is God's plea and warning to his people to say, don't let your love grow cold. Don't let the fire of God dwindle in your heart. Watch your complacency. It's interesting, 47 of the 55 verses in the book of Malachi are spoken by God in the first person. That's more than any other book as far as percentages go. God is speaking through Malachi intently, and this is his voice. He's saying, I'm saying these things. Let's see, you and I together, what God would have to say to a self-absorbed people, because that's what they have become. And that's what we can become as well. So I think we need to heed the warning of the book of Malachi. So, <clears throat> so Malachi 1.1 says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? We're going to see in the book seven times where God makes a statement, and it's followed up by what the people would have to say in response to that statement, all in the form of a question. Lost on Jeopardy here. So we're going to see these seven different statements. From those statements, those calls and responses, we're going to see God make his prescription. We're going to see God make his commandment of correction. So the first one is here in verse 2. The statement, I have loved you. The response, how have you loved us? Okay, so that's the pattern that we're going to follow here over the next couple weeks. I've loved you. How have you loved us? Well, in their complacency... The people had lost their zeal and passion for the things of God. So when God makes the statement, I have loved you, and that I have is not necessarily entirely past tense. It's I have loved you, I am loving you, I'm going to love you. That's the idea. I have loved you. They couldn't figure out how. How have you loved us, God? I mean, we went through the Babylonian captivity, our city was in ruins, everything's been difficult. Exactly how have you loved us, God? And that can happen to you and I as well. Perhaps you have asked the question. We can go get so wrapped up in all that God, that, I'm sorry, all that we are doing. Our lives can get so busy, all that's happening in this world, even good things can distract us from the sight of our God. We lose sight of him who loves us. We need to heed the warning that, that we're going to hear here in Malachi. But it's interesting, we also have a similar warning in the book of Revelation. And since we're headed there in a few weeks, I thought I'd go ahead and pull it out for this morning as well. In Revelation chapter 2, um, it's one of the letters to the churches, Jesus echoes Malachi essentially, and he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, 
and have labored for my name's sake, all good things, and have not become weary. And then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Same thing that Malachi is saying. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand unless you repent. That's Revelation 2, 1 through 5. You and I, as we walk with Christ, must be intentional about fanning the fire of our heart for God. So then the question becomes, well, how do you do that, Chris? How do we fan the flame of, of God in our hearts? We remember how God loves us. I have loved you, he said. Well, how have you loved us? Well, you and I can answer that question in two words. The cross. How has God loved us? The cross. We can look to the cross to see the ultimate example of God's display of love toward us. And that he sent his only son to take an instrument of death that you and I so rightly deserve. The wages that we have earned with our sin is death. But he absorbs that punishment on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How does he love us? He gave his only begotten son. So we can answer the question, and when, well, that's how, what we need to do is to fan the flame of our hearts, is to remember exactly what God has done on our behalf, the cross. You, uh, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Well, we can now answer that question. Picking up right where we left off. Um... In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Here is his answer, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. One thing we need to understand as we study who God is, God is elect in his love. God is intentional in his love. God is not reckless in his love. There's a very popular song right now called Reckless Love. I don't know if you've heard it on the river or anywhere else. It's a fantastic song. I catch myself singing it all the time. I'm just not so sure I would have chosen the word reckless. God is not reckless in anything. He is intentional in his love. Before Jacob and Esau, the twins, had opportunity to do good or evil before they were even born. God tells us while they were still in the womb that he would love Jacob. As we read here, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. A lot of people would have trouble with that verse. Understandably so. How could you Christians follow a God who says, I hated Jacob? I echo Charles Spurgeon's response to that question. I don't have trouble with God saying that he hated Jacob, or he hated Esau. I struggle more with the fact that God loved Jacob. Or that God would love any of us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, it says in Romans 5, chapter 8. That God would care for any of us, although we were enemies of his, is the, the miracle that baffles my mind. 
It's not that he hated Esau. He should hate all of us because we've all sinned against him. Yet he loves us. That's the mystery of this verse. It's an amazing thought that despite our vehement anger and hatred for God, that he would love any of us. Continuing on, uh, verse 4. I'm still getting used to transferring back and forth from the Bible here. So, bear with me. Verse 4. Even though Edom has said, uh, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eye shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. The people of Edom, it says. That's, the, that's what Esau became. The, the, people, the descendants of Esau became the people of Edom. And God is saying, I'm going to stand against them. You guys know the Romans verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, what shall we say then uh, to these things? If God be for us, right? What's the rest? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall be against us, right? We know that. Well, guess what? The negative of that is also true. Ever consider that? If God is against us, who could be for us? And God stands against Esau. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, had always stood against God. They were never going to give their hearts to him. And here God is saying he will always stand against them as well. Here's our second statement, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So the statement, you priests, you have despised my name. The, the response, the question, how have we despised your name? That's number two. We are to revere the name of God. We are to honor him in all that we say and all that we do. The word revere means to feel deep respect and admiration for. Do you stir that up in your heart? Do I stir it up in my heart that we would have a reverence for God and for his name? We have built into our natural relationships Reverence or respect, the way a son respects his father or is supposed to, the way a master or a servant respects the master, you and I would call that the employee-employer relationship. We have, we have those built into these relationships in our lives. Yet in people's complacency, God will say, well, I'm the father of fathers, I'm the master of masters, yet they don't have respect or they don't honor me. Just, some, just a heads up here. God's going to make his plea throughout the book of Malachi. Spoiler alert. The people aren't going to respond properly. They're not going to listen. They will continue to slip from a relationship with God to a religion of God. And that's a dangerous place to become. They will continue to slip from a relationship with God into a religion of God. And 400 years later, when Jesus rolls on the scene, the seeds that were planted at the time of Malachi have grown into the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
what's being planted here in this book becomes the religious leaders of the days of Jesus. And you know the issues that Jesus had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't heed the warning of the book of Malachi. The warning that you and I should heed as well. We must be intentional about showing God honor and respect. How do we do that? We fan the flame of God inside of us. That's, that's how we respond to the first statement. How do we show God reverence and respect? We devote our time, our talent, and our treasure to Him. We leverage all the things that God has given us for His glory. We give everything back to Him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God's going to give an example of how they have not revered him, how they have not honored him. And at the same time, he's going to make the third statement. So verse 7. Here's the example. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Third statement that God makes, you offer defiled food on my altar. The response, the question, in what way have we defiled you? God had established law requiring specific standards be met regarding the quality of the sacrifice. You've heard the phrase, they were to be without spot or blemish. The, the sacrifices that were given unto God were to be without spot or blemish. In their complacency, the leadership, the priests, were apathetic about the quality of the sacrifices that were being offered. So the people would come with a lame sheep or a blind goat or whatever, and, and uh, can we offer this? Yeah, whatever, it's, it's all good. Our application... We've got to be intentional about God offering God our very best. We must be intentional about offering God our very best. He's supposed to get the first fruits of our lives. The, the first energy, the first effort, the first treasure. He's to get the first fruits of our lives, not the leftover scraps. You and I, if we're complacent with our relationship with God, we can fall into a trap that says, well, if we've got more room in the budget, we'll give more to God. Or, if I've got some more time, I'll do more for God. That's thinking backwards. God is to get the first fruits. God is to get the first of our lives. The example he gives is funny. He goes, Take your lame sacrifice to the governor. What would he say, right? Or offer a broken gift to the governor. Invite the president of the United States over to your house for a meal of spoiled meat. How well would that go over? I mean, on your you know, political flair, some people might think that's a good idea. <laughs> we would never consider offering the governor a broken toy or the, the president, a, a meal of spoiled meat. But we often ask God to take a backseat in our lives. And we often put him with the leftovers. 
God say, no, switch that around. Verse 9 says, um, I can find it. Uh, but now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? If you and I find that we have slipped into complacency in our relationship with God, he offers grace. Entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us, is what we read in verse 9. You and I, as we find that we've slipped into complacency, we, we, we come under the, the banner of his grace. We swim in the depths of his grace. But don't take advantage of his grace by continuing to live in complacency. We repent of that, and we've set things right in our lives. There is grace there, but we must make the change. Uh, for who is there even among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. God is saying, it would have been better if you just shut the doors to the temple than to offer lame sacrifices, than to bring the blind sheep. Just shut the doors and we'll skip the whole sacrifice thing. It'd be better off that way. God is asking the priest, do you have any integrity left in you? Can you do the right thing here? It's a challenge to my heart. It's a challenge to our hearts, it should be, to not be complacent. For, the from, uh, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We know that the seeds that are planted here in Malachi become the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we know what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, that ultimately the Jewish people reject their Savior in Jesus Christ. Because of that rejection, the gospel goes to all the world. And all the people of the earth have the opportunity to come to Christ. Us Gentiles have an opportunity to be grafted in to the branch. We know that a day is coming that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. We know the end outcome. God is hoping that many hearts would bow today before him. So he continues the accusation. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit is food, its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. You, uh, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Modern-day vernacular. It's so hard to go to church on Sunday morning. It's such a burden. Who's got the time or energy for midweek study? They really want me to give up Friday night to hand out water bottles at 4th Friday? That's my time. Oh, but praise the name of Jesus. Listen. It's not a sacrifice if it's convenient. It's not a sacrifice if it's convenient and he is worthy. The, 
Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among all the nations, right? We know the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they switched what they were giving to God, how well that turned out for them. He's worthy of his name. He is worthy of our honor. He is worthy of our respect. He is worthy of our first fruits. He is worthy of our all. So now in chapter two, he's gonna to speak to the spiritual leaders. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Jesus says something similar. As Malachi speaks to the seeds, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 15. As he's speaking of the Pharisees to the disciple, he says, Every plant which, is, which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. People need leaders to follow. And leaders need to stand up and do what is right. As leaders of the church, we're to follow the, guide, the guidelines given to us in Timothy and Titus. And that's why I'm studying it with the, the men on the Wednesday night studies, that we would be fit leaders. We're to rightly divide God's word, it would tell us in Timothy. And we're to set, or, and we're to set the example of holding God in high esteem. I hope you see that in my life. I hope you see that in the, the people, the, the leaders of the church that you respect. And esteem for God's name. Honoring him with the words that we say and the things that we do. Behold, he says in verse 3, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. Uh, yuck. <laughs> hey, remember that party you had? The, the trash, you're going out with it. <laughs> then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name, right? Levi is the tribe of the priests. That's who he's speaking of here. Um, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from their iniquity. When the priesthood was established with Levi, it was a good thing, and God had done a good thing, and Levi was a good man. He led well. But we know, well, we know the law of diminishing returns. We know the second law of thermodynamics that, and when we understand those things, we understand how things fall apart, that things just deteriorate over time. That's the wages of sin, is that we have a world that is falling apart, we have people that are falling apart. And God is saying, I had it right with Levi. Let's get back to what it was with Levi. He wants them to go back to their first love. Verse 7, I love. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, 
and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the Malachi of the Lord. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You guys, I consider it a great honor to get to teach the Word of God. There is nothing I look forward to more than standing here and sharing the Word of God with each of you. <laughs> it's my prayer, and I prayed it this morning, that I would rightly divide the word of truth, that I'd be an instrument in his hands. The priest or the pastor, we would say today, is the messenger, the Malachi of the Lord. But that's not the way things were going. Verse 8, but you have departed from the way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. When leaders in the church do not hold the word of God in esteem, believing in its inerrancy and promoting that it's God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, the people just become more confused. If we don't say that this Bible is inerrant, that it is God-breathed, and that we are to subject ourselves to it, then we become the authority over it, and you and I get to pick and choose what we believe and what we don't believe. And sadly, many pastors are teaching that way today. We have to hold this as our authority. If we don't believe in its inerrancy and promoting that it's God-breathed, the people will just become more and more confused. I heard a, uh, Greg Laurie said something years ago that stuck with me as far as learning how to teach. He says, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. It's a mist in the pulpit. So if you're cloudy, just a, a slightly cloudy about anything, then it's going to be confused by most people. So we have to be crystal clear. I strive for that, to be crystal clear on what... God is saying through his word. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. People want authenticity. I tell this story every now and again. It made such a great impact on my life years and years ago. As I was starting to get into some teaching, I wanted to teach, uh, had a heart to teach college students. I went to a pastor's conference down in Florida, Merritt Island, Florida. And it was so cool because there were, there's like 2,500 people there. And the sanctuary had gotten so full that the people were looking for a place to sit. And there was probably about 100 college-age students in attendance at this conference. And the majority of them got up and went and sat on the floor up in front of the sanctuary so that other people could have seats. And this was maybe 10 minutes before the session started. And I was like, what a neat opportunity to talk to the people that I want to minister to, college students. And so I went and sat with them. I said, hey guys, how's it going? Do you mind if I join you? Oh, yeah, come on, sit down. And so we started a conversation. And I had been involved volunteering for Passion for a little while. And so that's kind of where this was all coming from. And I said, hey guys, I'm thinking about starting a college-age Bible study said, what's the most important thing that I need to know about who you guys are and what you're looking for in a Bible study? And the, to, a, to a T, seven or eight of them all said, don't be fake. Be real. 
authentic. And it just struck me as that's not what I expected. I expected, you know, to have a theological degree. Know, you know, know the scriptures inside and out. I said, no, we, just, we want to be loved and we want to be taught the truth. Be authentic. People want authenticity. We can't pick and choose where God is the Lord of our lives. We can't have him as Savior if he is not our Lord as well. He must rule and reign over the entirety of our lives. That's what he was looking for in the leadership. Um, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Love God, love others. That's how Jesus would say it. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. So now we get some more information about what some of the people were doing in their complacency. They have married the daughter of a foreign god, is what it tells us. We need to understand marriage is a covenant that is formed by God, no one else. And because God formed this covenant, he gets to define what marriage is and the parameters around the covenant. And we are not to defile it. Marriage is one woman and one man till death parts. Marriage is given to us to demonstrate the relationship between God and his people, between Jesus and his bride. And for us to vary from that is a direct insult to the name of God. God would have us to be equally yoked. One thing I want us to understand as we read this, God is not banning interracial marriages here. God is not banning interracial marriages. What he is banning is interreligious marriages. We must be equally yoked. May the Lord come off, cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, She's your companion and your wife by covenant. What was happening was the Hebrew men were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry heathen women, and the heathen women were leading them away from God. And they wondered why God wasn't honoring them. <laughs> why don't you hear us anymore, God? How about 1 Peter 3, 7? Husbands? Likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. You want your prayers to be heard by God? Honor the wife of your youth, is what it would say. Did he not make them one, verse 15, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none, dealt, none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. I'll say it this way. 
godly men, marry godly women, and create godly homes to raise godly children. That's what God wants. Godly men marry godly women to create godly homes and raise godly children. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you go through premarital counseling with me, um, we go through the chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapters 18, 19, and 20. And Matthew chapter 19 is Jesus speaking on divorce. And the lesson, the tool that we put in our toolbox for marriage is that we remove the word divorce from our vocabulary. We recognize as Christ followers that we are, it's more than just me and her. It is, we are a representation of Christ in the church. And Christ never divorces the church. So we remove divorce from our vocabulary because we always want to present God and God's relationship with the church through our marriage. That's what he's recommending here. Now we get statement and response number four in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? The fourth statement, you've wearied the Lord. How have we wearied the Lord is the question. By proclaiming a distorted view of who God is to the people. That's wearying to him. There are no scriptural loopholes. There are no shortcuts in Christianity. <laughs> there are no ways around it. We must walk through it. We need to understand that God is both merciful and just, and it's not right for us to proclaim otherwise. Our application? We have to be intent on holding to the attributes of God as given to us through his word. There are those that would teach today that hell is not real. Sorry, the scriptures teach that there is a place where you are eternally separated from God. We have to teach who God is. He is both just and the justifier. There is mercy, but there is justice as well. And that's the attributes of God that we must Hold to. We can't simply say, well, everybody, God loves everybody, just do whatever you want, and he'll accept everybody in at the end. That's not the way it works. You can't have him as Savior without having him as Lord as well. Four statements that we've gone through today. We'll cover the other three next week. I wrote them up here. Hopefully the font is not too small in case you want to jot them down. Number one. He says, I have loved you. And the question was, how have you loved us? And then our application. We've got to be intentional about fanning the, fly, the fire of God, uh, fire of our heart for God. How do we do that? You answer the question, how does God love us? Two words, the cross. Remind us of the cross on a regular basis. Second statement. You have despised my name. The responding question, you have just, how have we despised your name? And the warning for you and I in our complacency is 
We have to be intentional about showing God honor and respect. How do we do that? We devote our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy, everything that we have to honor and glorify His name. Number three, you offer defiled food on the altar. We don't have a, an accurate representation of that in our lives today necessarily. We don't bring food to the altar. The question, the responding question is in what way? But we do bring something to him as our offering unto him. Oh, back up. Go, go. Number three. There you go. We've got to be intentional about offering God our very best. He's to get the first fruits of our lives, not the leftover scraps. You and I can fall into the complacency of, well, if there's room in the budget, or if I've got some more time, I'll devote that to God. No, we flip our lives around so that God gets the first fruits. A very practical way that you and I can do that is in how we give to God. And the second half of the book of Malachi is going to speak specifically on that. But it is, is the, the check you write to church the first check of your paycheck that you write out, or the last? I'll see what I have left over after I've paid all my bills. It's just one of the ways that we switch things around in our lives, okay? That's a practical example. Okay. Number four. Satan was, you have wearied the Lord. How have we wearied the Lord? In our application, we've got to be intent on holding to the attributes of God as given to us through his word. There is no greater value or no, uh, no greater thing that we can value than his word. And we study it to know it so we know the author of the word. Make sense? Those are our four statements for today. We've gone through chapters 1 and 2. We'll cover chapter 3 and 4. Next week, we'll finish the book of Malachi. Thanks for hanging with me. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. It's been a challenging thing for me to study because even I can grow complacent in my walk with God. Our lives are so busy, it's easy to just follow, fall into the routine, and maybe you're in the same boat as me, and maybe God's stirring our hearts to say, no, I need to resubmit to him. God, we thank you and praise you for your word. I pray for everybody that's listening this morning, that perhaps today uh, we have grown complacent, and Lord, we have an opportunity under your grace to repent of that. That we have slipped into routine of religion rather than a thriving relationship with you. I pray that we would get back to our first love. When we fell in love with you, Lord, there was nothing that would stand in our way from coming to know you more. Desire to spend time with you in prayer and pour over the scriptures, Lord, to sing our praises unto you, O God. We slip into the routine so easily. Help us to heed the warning of Malachi. I pray for anybody here that doesn't yet know that Jesus died for them. That haven't accepted Christ as their Savior. For anybody listening online that hasn't yet given their lives to Christ, know that his love extends to each and every heart. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he has made a way that we might Come to have forgiveness of that sin and life everlasting. 
matter of accepting him as both Savior and Lord. And for those of us that have, Lord, I pray that, as I often pray to close the service, that we would hold you as our King, that we sing, I love you, Lord. And I pray that we would do more than just give you lip service. I pray that with our lives, we would show it. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.